We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This is the Gator Nation Football Podcast with your hosts, Alan Williams and James Gilligan. Welcome to the Gator Nation Football Podcast. I'm your host, James DiVirgilio, alongside Alan Williams. We are presented to you by my bookie, and we are here with a February edition of the pod. Quite a few things have happened, Alan. We've had a Super Bowl, we've had Gator coaching hires, we've had some transfers, we've had a recruiting season finish. We got a bunch of good things to talk about. Yeah, good to be back here on the pod with you. It's nice. It's February. It's beautiful weather here in Gainesville today. Glad to be here. As always, we want to open by saying if you like the content on this very podcast, follow us on social media. You can sub to our film breakdown channel on YouTube where we will have some spring content for you. And you can become a patron on Patreon. Thanks to all of you who support us not only for this season, but also throughout the entire year. Obviously, this being a Gator football-focused show, uh, we're primarily doing work during the season. And in the offseason, we do an episode whenever news merits it accordingly. And with that, we have a couple of new patrons. Well, one new patron and one existing patron. Robbie DeCola coming back in. Uh, was out back in. Welcome back, Robbie. Yeah, Robbie. What's up, man? Glad to have you back. And then Carl J. King coming in with an annual medium dono. Appreciate that, Carl. Welcome aboard. Brand new. Uh, glad to have your support and still sitting on the throne off season in season whenever is of course the man the myth the legend alexander leventhal and i'll take a moment here to thank a few more dono legends here a real pleasure to read this list off diego rivera bill hood james newton nathan jeter stash me bobby boucher frank marcelisi mike wechter tim kane nicholas isaac mike mark jackson tim honderick James Truitt, Gus O'Leary, Brad Wilson, Mark Mitchell, Chris Folsom, Dr. Matthew Galloway, Aaron Jeter, Jason Landry, Michael Reeves, Jason Johnson, Zach Sparks, Cooper and Kylie Craig. What up, y'all? And Mark Rubenstein. So we watched the Super Bowl together, and we're going to start with a Super Bowl discussion, a little Brady-Belichick discussion, and then funnel on ourselves down to the Gators. But we watched it together, Alan. Uh, had a really good time uh, consuming the game as well as the social activity what were your thoughts on the Super Bowl itself? Kind of lame. Uh, and that's mostly 
because it was disappointing that the Chiefs were so you know undermanned along the offensive line. I think this is true in football. If you wipe out a position group completely, especially something like offensive line, defensive line, corner, where it's easily exposed, you're just kind of done. And I think that's been well documented. They're they're basically playing backups along the entire line. You know, the backup right tackle is now the left tackle and there are things like that. So they they just could not do anything against what is a very good Bucks defensive line. And that was the whole story of the game. You can just say it right there. I mean, Pat Mahomes is a freaking wizard. And you saw some of the throws. He's making him running around. And it was still kind of incredible to watch him, even in those circumstances. It kind of like still displayed his greatness. But they were so shorthanded in that one area that it submarined everything else they were doing. Yeah, I think this is a great illustration. And all of you who listen to this podcast and have listened for a while already know this, you know, really at a, at a nice in-depth level. But football starts and ends with your quarterback having time to throw. And if you don't, it does not matter how good you are, how much of a wizard you are, or how athletic you are, you have no chance. Now, as you mentioned, Mahomes gave the Chiefs a chance to catch some ridiculous you know, 50-50 balls, if you will, that most quarterbacks are just eating sacks all day. So he did that, despite his numbers looking terrible, despite him looking, you know, really the worst we've ever seen him in a pro uniform. There's just nothing you can do. And this is, again, this is the takeaway. They still had their full complement of athletic talent in the skill positions. But what happens when you don't have the guys that can give you the time that you need? You can no longer produce at the level you need to produce at. And that was really unfortunate. You know, we had been asked on social media, who did we favor coming into the game? And that was exactly what we had said. Look, the Bucks, you know, we thought had a great chance to win because it was a great matchup. They had an excellent front seven. They could rush the passer really well with their front four. And we also got asked, Alan, you know, was this a result of defensive master class planning by the Bucks, or was it primarily the offensive line? And the answer is, of course, it was a master class, but only because the Bucks were able to get so much pressure. And give credit to them, there were there were hardly any snaps where they didn't bring at least somebody from a different angle at a different time. And we saw this a lot with Florida, and you don't see this in the NFL very often, but the Bucks were routinely bringing, if they rushed four, they'd bring the delayed guy from somewhere different as the fourth guy. And normally in the NFL, that is not a problem for O-lines to pick up, but it was when you had almost a universally like sub-replacement level play from Kansas City's offensive line. They just absolutely had no chance. Uh, this will, I think, be an asterisk for the Pat Mahomes era. A lot of stuff is left for him football-wise, but no one should look at him and think, oh, wow, I have questions now about what he can or can't do. We sort of just got unfortunately robbed, Allen, of what should have been an all-time great Super Bowl. It would have been really great. And it would have been phenomenal. And that's what I take away from it is great football lessons for the long term and also just unfortunate that Mahomes didn't have a full deck to work with uh, to make this game what it should have been. And obviously... We've gotten this far without saying that you know Tom Brady just does what he does, a consummate winner, which brings me to this one. This is what everyone's talking about. This has been the debate forever. Uh, was it more Belichick? Was it more Brady? Is it too soon to answer that question, or do we know now that it was more Brady? I think I'm you know, kind of partial to the Belichick infrastructure. You, know, you can take a great quarterback and— they can be on like very bad teams like and you know existing in this kind of ether where they're struggling I, I think you have to have both 
if you have a, a supremely talented quarterback and you have someone like Belichick, you should have a shot to win. And I, I think it's it's a fallacy to try to like put one over the other. Knowing one is slightly more important, like I, you can debate that. But if you take either one of those guys away, then the other one doesn't have the success. So that that would be my takeaway. You know, you can you can put obviously Tom Brady into a really good situation. He's going to elevate that team. Basically, the Bucks, for all intents and purposes, SWAT you know switched out Jameis Winston for Tom Brady, and they won a Super Bowl. So I think that shows you his power. But I also think you could have put Bill Belichick on any franchise with, you know, a really top-notch quarterback, maybe they wouldn't have won as much, but they would have been incredibly successful. So I think his talent for like organization building and, you know, construction of rosters and, you know, adapting on the fly through like 20 years is remarkable. We'll never see anything like that again. And I think that's the key takeaway is, is right now it's really easy when you're Belichick, you know, he's not a charming guy. He's not a lovable guy. There, there's things about him. There are cons about being Bill Belichick, right? But the roster that he maintained and built in the NFL with some with some questionable practices at times, you know, sure. spying on other people, filming things. But what he's able to do in a salary-capped league for as long as he did it was remarkable. Even this year's Patriots team, which is woefully undermanned and rather terrible, still was pretty decent when you look at the, the full log of what's happened. And, of course, he spent all year kind of saying when asked about it, yeah, look, this is not unexpected. You know, we won, we won so much in, in the salary-capped world of the NFL— this is what happens. Brady, of course, and this is where you have to give Brady a lot of credit. One, Brady existed with Belichick really well. Two, Brady's obviously a phenomenal leader. If you look at how he molded that team, how he really put things together. And then three, Brady's smart. He chose the Bucks on purpose. It wasn't because he wanted exactly. to live in Florida per se or whatever. He chose them because he looked at their roster, looked at his skill set, and felt like he could get it done. He also is able to lure Gronkowski out of retirement. That's just what winners do. It's what Tom does. The respect he has of players across the league as well as his own players is remarkable. Time will tell, though. I think this will be the key. Is, is We're going to find out what happens if Belichick's able to coach another seven, eight, nine years. Uh, I think now he's probably more motivated than ever to coach for a while because you know he doesn't want to just be attached as you only won with Brady. So we'll see. Clearly, Brady has put himself in an unassailable position. I mean, obviously, he is a major factor for as to why any team wins. And this is something that we know. We talk about on this podcast all the time. It's why I get so geeked up about quarterback play. No one is more important in any sport anywhere than the quarterback. But as you mentioned, Alan, even a quarterback... Take a look at Pat Mahomes. Can't do a whole lot if the other pieces aren't there. That's why football is such a great sport. That's why I love it so much. It, it is not an individual superstar sport, but without a doubt, we've never seen the likes of a Tom Brady in any sport, in my opinion. Um, just a, a remarkable winner. Remarkable winner. Yeah, he's unbelievable. I, I think I'm someone who really appreciates the cultural aspects of like building an organization and you saw the effect that he had on this team. And, and over time it, it changed. Right. And again, if Tom had said, I want to live in New Jersey and I'll sign with the jets, of course they're better. Are they winning the super bowl? Absolutely not. They're not even making the playoffs. Like he's not a miracle worker. So I think that's the power of the quarterback position, but also the power of culture making too. I mean, it changed the entire mentality of that team and you know there's other people who are significant to that process and not just Tom Brady but um 
you know, credit to Bruce Arians for letting Tom Brady come in and be Tom Brady too. I think not, not having the ego of saying, no, you got to do it my way, Tom Brady, I'm the coach here. So there, it was smart for him to go there. I think they did, they handled it the right way and they did things that allowed for them to succeed and they got better along the way. The defense got better. Um, I think every weekend they, you know, they got really great play from some fantastic players and they didn't screw it up with their scheme. So all of it has to be there. And Tom Brady, I think is, yeah, distance of so far. Someone pointed this out. I forget where I was looking at this, but let's say Pat Mahomes wins the Super Bowl. You know, Brady's got six Mahomes has two. And, but in this scenario, Brady now has seven Mahomes has one. And he has a head to head win over Mahomes in Mahomes prime with Brady's tail end of his career. I don't think you're ever going to like surpass that. That basically like, I think eliminates, I guess theoretically Pat Mahomes would be so good for so long, but it's hard to think about him winning eight Super Bowls or even seven. That just feels so far fetched. Yeah. And especially looking at, at Tom's, you know, record against Mahomes in the playoffs. Now it, it's Tom's going to keep playing though. So, he'll, exactly. you know, Mahomes will get a shot. We could, we could be watching the same exact Super Bowl next year. Good point. I want to, I want to close my Super Bowl thoughts and this conversation with something you just mentioned. I felt like early in the season, Bruce Arians was playing the role of a, a team saboteur by accident. He was kind of coming out in the media and calling out Tom Brady. He was sort of trying to fit Tom into his his, which again I talked we talked about this on the pod actually his his deep read first system, then come back to shallow. Which I actually prefer that. I think that's a better way to go for the longevity of football. But Tom Brady was a read shallow, read deep kind of guy. And when you've won a million games and you've won a ton of playoff games, don't don't change a guy in his forties. If you were astutely watching the Bucks throughout the season, Bruce slowly faded away with his own system, which we're probably not going to hear the real story until it's like in a documentary 10 or 15 years from now. But I have to imagine, Alan, that Bruce wisely and humbly stepped aside from what he thinks is the best way to play offense, which in my opinion is not wrong. Like I think the ceiling of him having Tom Brady eight years ago and him running this offense could have yielded to even greater offensive production but what Tom Brady does is he knows how to win football games. And if that offense in, that, in the Super Bowl was a vintage Tom Brady Patriots offense, I mean, it was all the same stuff you've seen before. The same run plays, the same screen plays, the same vertical plays, the same play action pass play. It was the same offense. That's Tom's offense that he brought over there and slowly through time, because again, this is the key. Tom's a good leader. He's smart. He didn't die on the hill in week one. He took criticism, and behind closed doors, I'm sure he just slowly said, look, Bruce, I like this play. I like this with our guys. Let's get this going. And he put his his feel, his touch, what he liked to do all over the place. But let us not fall asleep on the fact, Alan, that one of the greatest things a leader can do is recognize when they have something special and step out of the way a little bit. That is a very difficult thing to do. Well and said. so that, that should be respected and honored. That's not that he did nothing. That's actually one of the hardest things to do. Uh, so again, congrats to the Bucks. Uh, congrats to Tom Brady, obviously, and and obviously just in general, um, like you mentioned, for those of us who like to watch culture, organization, teamwork, selflessness kind of play out. There's something about the way that Tom handles himself with his teammates that is something you want to have uh, in your own teammates, which is which is great in an era at times where teammates can seemingly be all about themselves. Generally, those guys don't win. Mahomes is a similar guy. Almost the classic thing too. I mean, no one is going to work harder than Tom Brady. And if he's the best player, not only on your team, but maybe of all time, and you watch him working like that, 
it's very hard for you to exist in that culture where you're going to say, no, nah, I'm not going to do that. You're going to be on the outs with the team rather quickly. So you can't really calculate how much that's worth to a winning culture. No, and you heard the Michael Jordan doc, which I'm sure most of you have seen, reference that pretty well too. Mm-hmm. When you see Mike working so hard, it's not like he's sitting there doing nothing hardest and it makes you work harder all right a quick coaching corner i was skiing uh up in up in grand targi which if you like skiing at all you've probably never heard of grand targi go there it's absolutely remarkable it's right by the grand tetons it's in wyoming it's like an 80s ski movie in all the right ways but i missed almost all of the green bay bucks game which is wildly unfortunate um but obviously i've watched it all since then my phone was absolutely exploding (laughs) <laughs> with text during the final couple of minutes of that it game. And, and even though this happened a while ago, this was the this was the game of the playoffs, without a doubt. This was an incredible game. Um, Green Bay Furious comeback. They find themselves down eight, of course, as all of you probably will remember, with a little over two minutes left and still two timeouts. And it's fourth down for Aaron Rodgers. Not a long fourth down, not fourth and 20, in the red zone, right? And they elect to take a field goal. Now, on one hand, we'll defend the field goal first. Why would you ever do this? Well, the thought is if I kick the field goal, then I still have timeouts and the two-minute warning, I can get a stop. And then on top of that, if I get my stop, a touchdown wins the game outright. That's the thinking. That's the thinking, in my opinion, wildly flawed. You don't have the MVP of the NFL, all of the momentum on your side, down eight, with a fourth and manageable and not go for that with a chance right then to tie the game. And then you still get a chance to stop them again. Let's say you don't get the two-point conversion, you kick a field goal to win. Or if you don't stop them at all, you're in the same situation that you were in. So to me, Alan, such a minimal gain by kicking the field goal there, but you potentially do what they did, and you give up your actual in-the-moment shot to tie the game. They never got another shot. You have to take that shot right there. You can't count on getting that stop. They had a shot to tie it. It was in their hands, in their control. You have Aaron Rodgers. They don't. They don't give it a shot. What do you think about that scenario and those play calls? I think everyone in the room was completely perplexed while watching it. It's like, what what is happening? You're flabbergasted. Everybody around the country is immediately either yelling out loud or into their phones through Twitter or whatever. Like, what are you doing? So I think you know in the moment you made something, (laughs) made a historically bad decision. I heard someone later defending it analytically, like the percentages of like your kind of win probability is it's pretty close doing either one. But I feel like this is the kind of thing uh, that I'm speculating, you know, analytics is an incredible tool, but it is just a tool. And in the wrong hands, it can become like a knife that you stab yourself with. This is maybe Dan Mullen going for two and calling a timeout to go for two against Alabama when it's like, okay, that maybe it's helpful. You're glad you're looking at the analytics, but you just lost us the game because you didn't understand the game situation and your personnel. And again, for the Gators, it was simple math at that point. But this felt like a situation where you looked at the analytics and you're like, oh, well, it's about equal. Let's do this. It's like, no. Uh, anyone could tell you that this is the wrong move. The other team is celebrating that you're trying to kick this field goal. It was wrong in so many ways. And if your def- only defense is like the win probability, I think that that's not like where you want to live. And again, we're people who are very pro analytics. We like to talk about win probability and 
you know, in the decision-making matrix. But this is a situation where you outsmarted yourself for sure. Well, the analytics are helpful. And I think this is this is the crux of the discussion. The fact that it is basically an EV coin flip or close to it tells you now it's time to look at other factors. And on this very podcast, we've gone through sort of the game theory and we've actually given out our own litmus test. What do you think your opponent would want you to do? Don't do that. That's what you do in a coin flip. So all you got to do is think, wait a minute, I'm tempted to kick a field goal. What would the Bucks want me to do? They'd want me to kick a field goal. I'm not going to do it because it's a coin flip. But on top of that, you factor in the momentum they had. Yeah. Tremendous momentum. You have Aaron Rodgers at home. You have to go for this. Again, there's some situations where maybe, maybe I could I could defend a field goal. I think it's really hard. But let's assume my quarterback doesn't throw very well. Or let's assume I haven't defensive oriented team that and I was going to say that secondarily. Yeah. So my quarterback, we just haven't converted a fourth and six or seven all not a, not all day long, not even close. We're, no one's even close to open. Okay, fine, that's one thing. Secondarily, my defense is absolutely owning them in the second half. They have like less than thirty yards. They can't move the ball. Maybe then you start to say, I'd rather take my chances trying to score a touchdown again when I have the ball, um, trying to have a, a better situation. There's times when you could defend that, and that's why you can't just, like you said, Alan, to me, in a football game, when you get close to the end and you're using expected value, again, expected value is if you replay the situation like a thousand times, and it's like 45-55, that's a coin flip. Even 40-60 could be a coin flip, depending on the situation that you're in, right? That's not great enough to say, I'm automatically going to do this. You start getting things like 80-20, 75-25, you better start listening to them. But I think you said it well. The EV is not what let this down. This is not an attack against analytics. This is an attack against a coin flip situation where you have to factor in all of the other elements and make the right decision, especially in, including what that does to your team, what it does to the other team, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Aaron Rodgers, for what it's worth, probably handled that better than most people expected he would have, given <laughs> his past with saying things in a press conference, simply saying it wasn't his decision. He's engaged now. Maybe that's calming him down. I have no idea. You would have to imagine if it were me, if it were me, I would have probably lost my mind. Had I, I, don't, I don't know that I would have allowed the field goal unit to go on the field if I was Aaron <laughs> Rodgers in that situation. I mean, I think there would have been like a sideline protest. Either way, wild scenario there. Uh, something I'm sure he'll never forget for as long as he lives. Sports can be like that. All right, let's transition now, Alan, to the Florida Gators. Enough NFL. Let's talk about all the things that have happened with Florida since we've last been with you here on the podcast. Okay, so it's NFL draft season. A few notes here. Kyle Trask out of the senior bowl with an ankle injury, so he didn't get to play, you know, and with the limited options that surround this draft process, how much do you think that hurts him? I think it really does. If you if you look at how that week impacted guys like Mac Jones, Kadarius Toney seemed to be a massive benefactor. Trask needed this week, I thought, more than any of the other quarterbacks that were going to be there because he needs to prove a lot of things to the NFL community uh, that helps, I think, supplement what you already see on film. And I thought this was a tremendous loss for him. I have to imagine this ankle injury was, was serious and not something that he could have toughed it out in because there's no way, if you're his agent or his support staff, the right decision is to sit this out. He, he needed every rep he could have gotten there to prove what he's like, what his arm strength looks like, how cerebral he is, how he works other players, how he does in a camp scenario. So I was really sad that he didn't get a chance to, to be there so he could have kind of you know taken in some of what happened and what didn't happen. Now this will make his pro day, and pro days are so ridiculous, Alan. It will make it important 
because the NFL does care about that. It's the first time they can ask him to do some things. Let me see what you do in the workout. Let me see how much velocity you have on your pass. So that's going to become rather important for him. But there's no doubt that I think this will have potentially affected uh, his draft stock in some way, shape, or form. I think he could have moved himself up greatly with good a good senior bowl week, and now he lost that opportunity. Yeah, so it's, this is a funny thing. Uh, it definitely affects his... Uh, well, potentially outside of someone just deciding they're going to take him. A consensus around him, at least... You know, I think if you're not going to be like a top 10 pick, like your the money starts to really shift. So whether he's a second round pick or a third round pick or whatever, he's getting drafted. He's going to be on a team. And then it comes down to really the roll of the dice like it's for anybody who's not a top 10 pick. Are you on the right team in the right fit? That determines so much of your career and at least how it starts. Um, so that doesn't matter. I mean, you could get in a great situation in the first round or the third round or a bad situation, either of those slots, that's not the determinative factor. So I I think you'll see less buzz around him. He won't be like the hot name as in this part of the draft process, but with quarterbacks, all it takes is for people to fall in love with a guy. I mean, gosh, uh, you know, EJ Manuel went top half of the first round and people were like, what? When it happened, the Bills fell in love with him and drafted him super high. And people were like, that feels crazy. Christian Ponder going to the Vikings like, you know, ninth or 11th or something like that. So, and and Trask is better than those guys, certainly. So, uh, who knows? The, the, when it comes to quarterbacks, all bets are off in terms of how high they might push up the board. It's going to be, a, that's going to be a fascinating storyline for Gator fans about where he ends up going. Now, Florida Allen has not had, and this is quite the stat. We're about to drop on you here. An offensive skill position player, so running back, tight end, wide receiver, quarterback, selected in the first round of the NFL draft since Tim Tebow in 2010. 2010. Now, obviously, this year that's going to happen. Pitts is a guaranteed first rounder, so we're going to check that box. But that, that shows you something all of us already intuitively know what the past decade was like for Florida football on offense. That's that's inexcusable to yeah. be in a state where you have so much skill position talent. And it's also that's a wild. remarkable stat when you, when you really look at it like that. Not one. So, you know, when I first read it, I was like, no offensive player? Like, that can't be right. But, you know, while we've had some linemen in the mix there, and, you know, you're it's rare to see a running back these days in the first round. And, you know, quarterbacks, obviously, we've – you know, detailed their failure here at Florida as much of the media has. Where this really highlights for me is wide receiver. Because you are churning out three of those guys every year out of your program. That's pretty remarkable in the state of Florida that you have not recruited and developed a guy who would go in the first round. Now, again, Van Jefferson went in the second round. Getting close there. Like, he's a success story. So it hasn't been... You know, nobody, but that floor is a place where you would expect that you would see first round wide receiver talent. That's where it's supposed to show up for a program like Florida. I mean, again, running back, I mean, tight ends rarely go in the first round. So it's not like you're expecting those guys, but for as many wide receivers that we have, you know, graduated for none of them to go in the first round is a real indictment in the program. You know, is a the chicken of the egg here? You know, I think it's a little bit of both. And so, yeah, glad that's going to change. Hopefully, we'll see some of these guys in the future 
you know, Florida begin to develop the type of talent that would go in the first round. Yeah, we'll talk about Florida's roster composition here when we get to recruiting. All right, staff news. This has been perhaps the most talked about thing for Florida fans. We've filled out our staff seemingly here. We're done. Uh, our most recent hires, USF's cornerback coach and recruiting coordinator, uh, Jules Montanar. How do you feel about this hire? I feel mostly positive about it. Um, if you were asking me, of course, who is USF's cornerbacks coach? I could never tell you in a million years. So my opinion is only being shaped by his general profile, right? A younger guy who's a, you know, has some connection to recruiting. I've paid no attention to USF's cornerbacks. So he could be good. He's, this is the type of guy I would have wanted us to hire um, for this position. You want to beef up your recruiting. You want to solidify that. Hopefully he's a great developer of talent and an ace recruiter and all the things you want him to be. I have no idea whether it is, but it checks the at least kind of big picture boxes that I'm looking for. Yeah, we needed a recruiter, so check for that one. We had already mentioned the other hire that we had was a a more stable coaching hire per se, who's also a recruiter. Not in love with what's happening on the defensive side of the ball because what does it matter, obviously, if we still have Grantham overseeing things because ultimately he's the main teacher, he's the main counselor, he's the main staff guy. That's why you're going to hear everything I say with this sort of modicum of unless we had hired somebody who was going to challenge the schematics of Florida's defense, like which we, we talked about with Chris Ash, correct with Chris Ash, which we absolutely did not do. It was going to be a, a fail box for me for Dan Mullen heading into the offseason. So my opinion now looking at the defensive coaching hires, we failed in the offseason cataclysmically by not getting rid of Grantham. And we're going to, in my opinion, Alan, reap what we sow in the upcoming season on defense as well. And that's just unfortunate because I, you know, I think most of you agree with me nowadays on that as well. It didn't have to be that way. And here we are. So that will be a story to watch. So, yeah, let me just translate this for you a little bit. Not, you have no particular opinions on Jules Matanar. Let's say we had an ace defensive coordinator and we hired this guy. You're like, sure. Good. I hope he's the right guy. I don't know. It fits the right metrics. Yeah, that's actually well said. Let's assume that you love your defensive coordinator. Now you probably think, what a great hire. He probably found somebody who's really up and coming and is going to pull in recruits and going to be wonderful. And that's a lot of what leadership does for you. In this case, Jules could be great. The bottom line is, like you mentioned, he's not going to significantly affect what happens on defense. That's the problem. You know, create an allocation of how each coordinator or each coach affects the position grouping and then kind of allocate that to the defense overall. And obviously, in my opinion, Grantham is, is way beyond the majority allocation of influence. And that's why, although this could help, this could get better. We had some serious issues, you know, safeties and otherwise. Uh, accordingly, not so great. Not to mention, uh, you know, the, the C-Rob stuff, right? Linebackers coach stuff going to Michigan and they find out about it. They give him a pay raise. This is a guy, Alan, that I said, hey, maybe he's recruiting well, but I'm firing the guy based upon on-field performance. And now Florida goes out gives a pay raise. We said on this very podcast, it was absolute absurdity that there was a rumor that Florida couldn't fire Grantham because of money. Well, anyone who thought that was true should now know that's not true because we just gave a pay raise to a linebackers coach who, in my opinion, has yielded no fruit at this point in time. Um, and again, maybe he's the right guy on a staff where you have a great X's and O's guy. And that's possible that, that, that Christian Robinson is that guy. 
But right now, just a lot of things on defense that lead me to say this is not a good look leadership-wise for Florida. And, and you mentioned it well. No offense there to Jules. Uh, obviously, he could be great. And maybe he'll be a guy who's helpful for the program past the Grantham era if that happens too. Only time will tell, but still more of an indictment on what happened on the defensive side of the ball in general. All right, Gators make another move on the coaching staff. Filling out the offensive side, promote Garrick McGee, who had been you know with the staff as an analyst to quarterback's coach filling the spot that Brian Johnson vacated. So, you know, I mean, it wasn't a splashy hire by any means, but I have no opinion on Garrick McGee. I don't think that they were looking to really bring on, an, you know, someone of like real stature. Cause it's not really a place on the staff for them. I mean, they have, of course, Mullen is heavily involved. Gonzalez and Hevesy are also, you know, carried titles with them in certain places on Florida staff. So this was, you know, a promotion they were going to fill at that 10th spot because there's some recruiting ramifications about who's allowed to visit and who's allowed to do what and these types of things, but definitely not a splashy hire. Yeah, it's questionable if, and this is what you just mentioned, which is a nice tee-up, this would be unbelievably questionable if your coach was not already the guy who's running all the offensive stuff, right? So with Mullen, of course, you're going to say, look, he's running the offense. He knows everything that's going on with it. This is just a guy who's been in the system who he's plugging in to be a good soldier and do what he wants to do. And he's the quarterback coach, not the OC. Correct. He did play quarterback. He has been a defensive analyst for the staff on Florida. He was not an offensive analyst. That's actually frequent. A lot of people are like, wait a minute, this guy's a defensive analyst. Well, that happens a lot. You hire an offensive coach to be your defensive analyst. So you're, you're, you can look and say, hey, here's what teams are doing. I don't know what kind of analysis he was doing on defense, given our defense last year. But regardless, in general, if you look at his track record, Alan, to me, Nothing here is is good. He he hasn't he's never ascended past a point that was any good. Whenever he reached a point of being an OC, he pretty much was gone the next year. He's got some really ugly things on the resume with regards to performance when he had bigger jobs. We can wipe all that away and say fine because ultimately Dan Mullen's the guy. But it's at this point in time that I would be not doing you a service as a listener if I didn't say on the flip side. I'm I'm going to give you Nick Saban who now is going to have three former NFL head coaches on his staff, doesn't seem to follow the same methodology that Dan Mullen does, which is, I don't know, loyalty, friendship, unheralded guys, sticking with whatever. He hires the best absolute people that he can to try to make his organization better. So this hire for me, although we can try to cushion it in the old classic, Dan's running it, what's happening I don't like it. I just don't like it. If I'm the coach, I'm surrounding my staff. I'm, I'm hiring guys that are absolutely the best possible guys that I can get to make my team as good as possible. And I'm recognizing I don't know everything. I need a lot of help. And if I can bring on you, Alan, and you're a young offensive mind, you might be able to add things to my playbook. You might be able to refine my processes. I want the best and smartest possible guys I can get. And I want my culture, Alan, and my organization to be known with hiring the best talent. So if you're a 28-year-old and you're a grad assistant somewhere and you're thinking, I want to be the best I can be, you're saying, one day I want to be on Florida staff. And I, I'm just not seeing that with these hires. So that, that, that for me frustrates me. And, you know, yes, Alabama is Alabama. But look, Florida fans, all of you out there, that's who we're competing with. So we either, you know, pack up our tent and go home and wait until Nick Saban retires or we try to do something about what's happening in Alabama. So far, I'm not seeing a lot of, you know, doing something about it. Well, a couple comments on the Nick Saban situation. I mean, Alabama is always the outlier. I, I don't think most head coaches would submit themselves to being on somebody's staff other than somebody like Nick Saban. 
and the, you have the Nick Saban coaching rehabilitation clinic where people go there like Steve Sarkeesian and they come out the other side with a high profile job. So that's what they're looking for there. I mean, often it might not be good ego wise to bring in guy, three guys who had just been running their own organizations, but Nick Saban can handle that because he's the dictator and everybody knows that. Right. So the Gary McGee thing is interesting. I was trying to find an, an alternative usage of this coaching spot, right? Because the NCAA would say you're allowed to have like 10 on-field coaches. They don't specify what those are. It's not like the outlines are offensive, defensive coordinator, position coaches. You, you could do whatever you wanted. It's tough the way we're currently constructed because you don't want to necessarily hire a unproven guy to as quarterbacks coach to spend all your time with your quarterbacks. You're like, is that actually going to help them? Because maybe Dan Mullen is already doing that. I don't know what what it needs is more recruiting, but maybe you don't situate that in the quarterback spot. So maybe you have to get creative about how you align your coaches. We didn't show any kind of creativity here. We just promoted a guy to a job. Do we even need him doing this job? Maybe we do. I don't know the inner workings of our organization, especially inside the quarterback room. And Brian Johnson was the offensive coordinator and I, I know worked with quarterbacks, but can Dan, can Dan Mullen do that? And you see the control of something else somewhere and then you hire another ace recruiter to fill in for the staff. So there's things you could do and get creative. This feels just like, sure, we'll never know. We'll have zero idea whether this was good or bad, ever. I, I don't think we'd ever quantify what what is Garrick McGee's contribution to the program, even if the offense is incredible next year. Well, I might take a different track. We can look at Brian Johnson and say he just got hired by the Eagles. Sure. So clearly, so far, it looks like he added value to the organization. Agreed. If Garrick McGee is gone in two years in some other school and he's not an upward move, I think we could look and say, didn't seem like that was super great. So you can look at Ron English, who's with Purdue now. Okay, Purdue is not Florida. I mean, Purdue fine right that's a step down that tells you a lot about what happened to him so I think time will tell with this I think that's part of what I'm saying is like ideally you would want as many of your assistant coaches as possible to keep climbing up the ladder and eventually look people hit their ceilings that's okay you're not going to hire a bunch of guys to go win as head coaches look at Nick Saban's coaching tree but it's hard to imagine Garrick McGee at 47 given his background, is going to go anywhere other than somewhere else after a couple of years. And you're going to think, was that a value add? And if so, then what's the point? Like you're mentioning, what's the point of even hiring a coach then if Dan Mullen's going to do it? I'll hire a coach you actually need, like, hey, a guy to get five-star athletes in the program. I don't know. It's just interesting to me, I think, when you break it down granularly. But I think you're also, Alan, extending the modicum of, look, Dan Mullen is the offensive guy. Sure. But this seems just suboptimal, I suppose, is what I'm saying. Yeah, uh, certainly. Um I don't know who they would have brought in. That would have made me go, yeah. So it, it's, a, it's a little bit of a niche kind of fit to add to the staff in that position, especially late in the game where it was. So that might have been a contributing factor. I mean, we lost Brian Johnson pretty late in the coaching carousel. So might not, they could have looked at candidates and said, we're better off elevating this guy who knows what we're doing than bringing in a guy that we're unsure of. So yeah, that's true as well. And and that's a, there's a, there's a nice um, sort of maybe final thought along hiring coaches 
in general. It's not that any of us are going to look at who we hire per se and know, as you're saying, this assistant coach is going to be incredible. But generally, you want to look at them and think they have moonshot potential. That's what I would say. At some positions. Again, you have to have a staff. You have to have role players. You have to have recruiters. You have to have moonshot guys. You know, you certainly can't have all 10 guys in your staff be future head coaches. That's not realistic, right? Uh, But I think you're looking at Florida's staff and you're saying, and I'll pose this to you, who's who's the moonshot assistant coach on Florida staff right now? Well, we paid him the money, Christian Robinson. There you go. And that shows my frustration with allocation of resources right now. I mean, if he was going to go to Michigan, which, by the way, seemingly not in the world's greatest position with regards to production and talent on the field. But we can't know these things. You're right. Well, Time again, will tell. He we'll has recruited well. Some of our best has. Yeah. recruits like in profile have been in these linebacker spots. You know, they're, they're often listed at various positions like Diabate. What position does he play? But, you know, we haven't seen the type of linebacker play that we want to. But a lot of these guys are younger. If you think he can turn the corner developing, obviously shown that he can recruit. Maybe that's why you pay to hire a guy, especially when you're or pay to retain a guy, especially when your other options maybe are limited. So I don't I don't hate it. Uh, I still think it's early. You you took that guy because he's an ascending guy, not because he's a a grizzled old veteran who can grind out grind out linebackers. Right. And like we said, that hire made sense. We said it when it happened And, and potentially it still could in absence of Grantham. And that's why, you know, we've, we've gone backwards to kind of go through this. And Alan's doing a nice job of continually sequencing this. There's more than just one domino. It's not an isolation. So like we said, let's say that we chose to retain C-Rob. We brought in a different defensive coordinator. I feel differently because now maybe you, Alan, as the mastermind DC, looks at C-Rob and says, hey, look, this is what you do really well. You keep doing this. Let's clean up this area. And I've molded my staff to make sure that I have coaches and teachers and recruiters and then C-Rob can learn. Those are things you and I can't ever know. But you're correct. I would rather have the moonshot guys like C-Rob, at least a couple of them on the roster, than a bunch of guys that maybe aren't going anywhere. Florida right now seems to be leaning more towards the bunch of guys that probably aren't going anywhere. With a Billy Gonzalez, who's been a remarkably solid, despite a lot of you know opinions throughout the time, the guy's just been remarkably solid, still sticking as a wide receivers coach. He's a guy that potentially at some point in time would get a different opportunity at a higher level if he keeps doing what he's doing. But again, hard to find a lot of coaches where we can say if they left Florida, they would get a better job. We just lost the one who is sort of the ascending star in Brian Johnson, but on the offensive side of the ball where Dan Mullen is still the, of course, you know, star of the offense. And longevity isn't bad, right? I mean, you look at Clemson, everyone every year tries to interview Brent Venables, Tony Elliott. They just keep paying him more money. They do have guys leave, but they've had some remarkable consistency. And I think that's proven extremely beneficial for them. So if you create a place that people want to stay employed, they're not going to leave for lateral to marginal improvement. Yeah, assuming they're sought after, which is the dream. The dream is to have coaches everyone wants and they don't leave. That's true. the home run. All right. Eric Gilbert, maybe you've heard of him. If you haven't, uh, welcome to the podcast, I guess. But uh, five-star tied in from LSU, who was, I think, the highest rated tight end that they've ever documented. Uh, astounding physical specimen if you saw him on the field earlier in the year for LSU. Uh, transfers, enters the portable, and chooses Florida. Uh, I think some people were surprised. I'm not. If you look at what Kyle Pitts does and you thought, I can be him, that's a pretty compelling argument, right? So 
again, there's still question marks. He's committed, although I don't think he can technically enroll now till May because he missed the window. Uh, there are some eligibility rumors, so he's not signed, sealed, and delivered yet. But huge commitment for the Gators talent-wise. I mean, to, you will always take a guy of his talent and pedigree, uh, no matter where you might find him. So an enormous recruiting coup for the staff. Yeah, this is better, assuming, and there's some big questions. Like from what we understand, it's very questionable if he's going to qualify right now. There's a lot of issues. But assuming he's able to play in 2021, this is better than taking any five-star tight end in high school because he's already been on the field for LSU. You already have film on him. We did a breakdown on him the week we played LSU, the week he basically quit the program. The dude is an absolute freak. Absolute freak of a tight end so hopefully we see him in action for florida uh this is obviously yet another massive get for dan mullen who is despite absolutely not being the king of the high school recruiting market is the undisputed champion of the transfer portal and this is a big get you know tyler rummery the first fan of the podcast likes to say all the time why would any tight end go to georgia eric gilbert was a strong lean towards georgia he's from there he was homesick but Cooler heads prevailed, and he chose Florida because Georgia essentially doesn't do anything with their well, they had and this, haven't for a long time. And I think he only could look at, I believe his name is Darnell Washington, a very high four-star, five-star-ish tight end. You know, the second-rated tight end on the board went to Georgia, and I think he had like seven catches last year. So, And it's not like they were overflowing with talent at the tight end position. So, uh, you know, competition there where you can come walk right in, and if you're good enough, you're going to play – in Kyle Pitt's spot. And if you think you're that good, come and do it. Now, again, I think he'll be disappointed if he's expecting the kind of production Kyle Pitts had because he's not going to have Kyle Trask throwing him the ball. But should still be a highly effective player in any kind of offense if you're going to feature him. At least that's his profile. Absolutely. Huge get. All right, it is my bookie time. If you're going to put some action on the games, and there are plenty of sports, of course, to put some action on right now, whatever your preference is, do it with a reputable brand like my bookie. Make your deposit using our promo code GatorNation, and they'll match you halfway to give you a head start on building your bankroll. So if you put 200 bucks in, you'll get an extra $100 to play with. Joining and depositing is a simple process. It's quick, it's easy, and more importantly, when it's time to get paid, that's quick too. Invest in your intuition to make 2020 winning season. So bet, win, and get paid with MyBookie. Visit MyBookie.ag, that's MyBookie.ag, and enter our promo code GatorNation for a 50% deposit match. Okay, so it was National Signing Day this past Wednesday. I'll forgive you if you didn't notice. I barely did. Uh, if it didn't make it onto your news feed, it's because the Gators didn't sign any high school players. Uh, early signing day, the one in December is now for all intents and purposes, signing day, uh, barely a trickle of guys signed this past, uh, signing day officially. Um, and it's very quiet nationally. There's very, very little noise. A few things are happening, a few high profile guys, but not much. Um, so James, why don't you fill us in? How did we end up? So here is how we look at recruiting on this podcast. We look at it in the macro and we look at it overall based upon our tier system. So I'll start with that first. We use the 247 composite. The composite pulls together a variety of recruiting service rankings. So it's sort of your overall index, if you will. And then we tier them accordingly. So what we say is if you have two or more 
top 30 players. Those traditionally would be your five stars. We say top 30. Six or more top 100 or 13 or more top 300. You need all three of those together. Uh, Then you are going to be a tier one team. Tier two is going to have one top 30 player, four plus top 100s, and 11 plus top 300s. And then tier three, you're going to have zero to one top 30, just two top 100s and eight top 300s. So you get this nice little scaling down effect. This helps to kind of distinguish the teams versus just their actual ranking. And with that now in the background, we'll give you Florida's ranking. We'll start with last year to give you some context. So last year, our final ranking was eighth. We finished fifth in the SEC or sixth in the SEC, depending on how you looked at it. Uh, and we were just, you know, essentially slightly higher than the year before. We had 25 commits. We had one top 30 player, four top 100, 13 top 300, and essentially moved ourselves up from a tier three to a tier two. So last year, we were tier two. Factoring our transfers, we said yeah, basically a tier one class, tier 1.5. You got to count the transfers. All right, this year, this year, we have a few fewer commits, 22 commits, and basically very similar stats. One top 30, just like last year. Three to four, depending on if you're counting uh, Dewan Black in that top as a top 100. Nine to 10, so a few less in the top 300. We're ranked 13th nationally this year, despite the fact that we basically had the same overall kind of recruiting ranking, which just tells you the other teams did better last year than this year. We did the same. We're fifth again in the SEC Essentially, this is what to expect. We've been saying this every recruiting breakdown that we have in the macro, Alan. This is just what Dan Mullen is right now. Icing on the cake is that we have two five-star transfers. So if you look again at that, you sort of get us in that tier 1.5 class. So it feels like, hey, this is pretty good. You know, we're kind of fitting in this tier 1.5 class. But thanks to our friend, the Astute Alligator, you can find him on Twitter at Astute Alligator. He wrote to us and said, hey, I like to do these breakdowns. I'm going to give you guys you know, some breakdowns based upon what you like. And this is incredible, Alan. This is so good. And soon we're going to post for you on Twitter the, the full breakdown of the top 15 he's going to do. But he's taken a selection of teams that Florida obviously plays every single year uh, for the most part in some way, shape, or form and or would play in a playoff. So we have Alabama, Georgia, Ohio State, Clemson, Florida, LSU, Miami, Tennessee, and Florida State. And we're going to look at their top 30, top 100, and top 300 players. And again, I'll post this on social media. So this is kind of our tiered system rubric, and we want to see where is Florida in relation to our competition. We'll start with Alabama and Georgia who basically have double the top 30, Allen, and double the top 100 players that Florida has. So if you're looking at a roster construction, Florida has seven 2021 five-stars predicted to be on the roster. Bama has 14. Georgia has 16. Ohio State has 14. So double. So you get twice as many five-stars to pick from when you're building your roster. Florida has 18 top 100 players. Bama, 38. Georgia, 35. Ohio State, 33. So twice as many top 100 guys to choose to fill your roster. Remember, you're only starting 11 guys on each side of the ball. And finally, top 300, Florida has 43, Bama 68, Georgia 58, Ohio State 54. That's crazy that, I mean, so what Bama is doing is statistically unbelievable. They're doing things that nobody has ever done even close in the history of them, like tracking this stuff. I mean, you have 85 scholarship players and, 68 of them are top 300 players that includes like you have to have guys like kickers and punters on your roster too i mean it's 
It's unreal. That is the, to hold yourself to that standard is ludicrous, but they play in our conference, which is very unfortunate. Yeah, and the key though is Georgia and Ohio State are close enough, close enough that the diminishing return of getting a gajillion guys in the top three hundred is small enough that they they could win. And you see that, you know, you see that Georgia is basically the same top thirty and top one hundred, and then they have ten less top three hundred. So they are at a talent disadvantage, but they're in the ballpark; they can compete, and that's why that's why you've seen Georgia compete with Alabama at times. That's why you've seen that. No matter how much you dislike Kirby Smart and think he sucks, again, Tyler and Marie. You have to recognize the fact that when you have this much talent, although you can underachieve, you also can theoretically beat a team like Bama. Well, this is all comes down to talent quarterback for Georgia. They've been underperforming or lost at quarterback this year. Clemson, who has a lower talent profile than Georgia, just put Deshaun Watson and or Trevor Lawrence on these Georgia rosters. They're probably winning two or three national championships because of the rest of the talent around them. And so again, this is the Belichick Brady thing, right? Like if you don't have both, you're you're not going to be, you know, traditionally great. And Georgia didn't need Tom Brady; they just need somebody adequate, above average, excellent, not generationally talented. So the the breakdown, and then you see Kyle Trask elevate a more mediocre Florida roster into playoff contention, all almost single handedly at times this year. Yeah, and and super well said there, breaking that down. That is the difference primarily between these teams. Uh, Ohio State, like we said, so you have basically Bama and Georgia. They're like super tier one. Then you have Ohio State, which is solidly also in tier one. And if you want to grade them, they're like, I mean, a touch, just a touch behind I mean, those two schools. And then you have a solid by itself tier two. Now, again, this is like a, this is the five-year kind of look at the tiers, not the one-year look, but this is the five-year look. Clemson is by themselves tier two. They have 10 top 30s. They have 23, so 10 to 15 less than the schools above them, top 100s, and they have 50 top 300s. So they're in a class of their own. And you mentioned, Alan, and we've talked about this before. This is where, what kind of five stars do you have? Do you have an NFL first-round draft pick at quarterback who's, who's, you know, transformational? Well, then that might be worth six five stars, right? So that's why you can make that happen. It's roster building. It's really important. Clemson obviously has had that. And then we have Florida. Now, again, this is not an exhaustive look of other schools, but then we have Florida. Florida here is in what I would call the next tier, which is tier three. And we have LSU right there with us. So we have, like we mentioned, seven top 30s, 18 top 100s, and 43 top 300. So about half of our roster is top 300 players. But we're giving a lot of ground up to the schools that we have to compete with. And and those are the schools you'd play in a playoff. So basically, we are at a talent disadvantage in any playoff scenario you would imagine, unless we played like a Notre Dame or someone else who was also an upstart. And then LSU is pretty much exactly right there with us, which is kind of surprising. It tells you how LSU's roster has gotten decimated by a lot of things here because they have recruited well in certain eras. They have basically the same numbers. No need to read them. And then you get a a major change when you get to Miami, which three top 30s, 11 top 100s, and 36 top 300s. A lot of that coming this year that did very well. Correct, and that's the key. So again, if you're a Miami fan, you're looking at your relative bases saying, we are upping our game, that's good. And if you're a delusional Tennessee fan, which are still my favorite fan base, zero top 30s, nine top 100s, 31 top 300s, and FSU, which this is remarkable if we did this five years ago, it's been way different. FSU, zero top 30s, three top 100s, 
and 27 top 300s. So again, soon we're going to see is bottoming it out, right? They, yeah. All the talent has left there. It's all gone. And Florida State, of course, is stuck. Now we will have like Texas A&M is a great one to look at. We're going to have all of those numbers for you here this week, which we will post. But we wanted to walk through that because this is a awesome stuff by Astute Alligator. And B, this is just how I biasly like to look at college football. I think this more than anything else, Alan, explains the results you see at the end of the year each and every year. And why do some people college football is quote boring it's because of how important these talent numbers are and so if you are a florida fan and you think florida can win the sec you have to hope in my opinion for some sort of anomaly miracle at this point of a perfectly hit roster where all of your five stars are amongst the best in the conference and everyone else just slots in perfectly because you're just giving up so much to your primary competition so Here's the interesting thing about what's going on with Florida right now. We are in this range where we're competitive with the best teams, but at a talent deficit. And that's going to show up potentially when you have to play, in Florida's case, three playoff games, the SEC title game, then two more to win a national championship. And that just seems that makes that task very difficult. If you don't have elite, elite talent. Um, By the way, just as a side note, this next year is going to be fascinating because of the eligibility rules where a team like Iowa State who got to keep everybody and teams at the upper end lost a lot of people. Do they, through sheer force of will, claw their way into like a playoff contention? Maybe they can't win the title, but maybe they elevate their current status. So this is going to be a really interesting year moving forward. Um, but Florida, we're in an interesting spot. We've kind of been in this same boat for a little while. Slight improvement. Like if we went back three years ago, we are ahead of where we were. So it's not like total just standing still, but not ascending quickly enough, probably by traditional metrics to the place you would want them to be. Okay. Uh, we I mentioned this before. We didn't sign a single high school player on National Signing Day. Does that care at all? Does that bother you? That's a formality. You said it best when we started covering the early enrollees and we had the discussion about what's going to happen in the future. And it was basically that National Signing Day will no longer be National Signing Day because it's such an advantage to get your class done early. That's what's happened. So whether or not we signed one at the end is who cares? All we really care about is what we just spent all of our time talking about. What does the overall class look like? And therefore, what does the overall team look like? And one thing that we haven't done, which we'll spend just a little bit talking about now because we're going to cover this as we get into the 2021 season is it's not just are we accumulating tons of talent? We know from obviously the Will Muschamp era, Alan, that you can accumulate a lot of top end guys, but if they're not fitting into positions, they're not fitting into your team, that's not helpful either. So Alan, since you are our beloved personnel guy. Jeez. I love that. I'm going to let you kind of guide us through the chart that we will also post here, which is the 2021 Gators roster talent by position. So interestingly, the weak side defensive end spot is our most talented. And that's because we probably over recruited the buck position. This would be like your Chris Bogles, your Brenton Cox's kind of guys, even some guys who aren't really playing yet carry a pretty high grade. Now, again, that's a premier kind of spot you want to recruit. Well, um, but yeah, it's kind of funny. Maybe we're a little overloaded there. Our outside linebacker, which is kind of the same position as the buck is our second highest rated position. 
That just goes to show you where we put the emphasis. And this includes guys like Diabate and then even Derek Wingo, a guy who didn't see the field. There, there's some talented guys there who haven't really gotten their chance yet or who haven't really been in the program long enough. And then, interestingly, you'll see just kind of a little bit of sliding scale. I mean, Florida's in the 90s for most of these positions, which is a decent score. Um, but then you see some of the offensive line spots, offensive line, offensive tackle and offensive guard are two of the lowest along with inside linebacker. And then it kind of climbs safety is just a little bit above them. Defensive tackles a little above them. Those are, those have been our weakest positions. And guess what? That's showing up in the recruiting rankings. Now, again, you could have offensive guards who are way outperforming their recruiting rankings. We talked about offensive linemen are notoriously difficult to grade. So that's not necessarily like if you had if we had great guards and we looked at those rankings, be like, that's really surprising. It wouldn't be that surprising to see great production from lower-rated guys. But especially like tackle, safety, defensive tackle, you want more high-profile guys. And even these defensive tackles, a lot of that those grades would be from guys who didn't play a lot because we had a decently highly-rated class last year. We saw some Gervin Dexter out in the field. There's some other guys behind them who haven't really shown up on the field yet. And so... Yeah, it's uh, the. I would say there's the places where we're weak are the places we recruited the least. And again, you can't have perfect scores across the board unless you're Alabama. But the failings of the staff in terms of recruiting are, are showing up on the field. And that's one way to look at this. And that's important is kind of this is your battle plan. Where am I weak? I'm a general. This is weak. I'm weak at these position groups. And secondarily, Alan. If you played baseball at all, you know that the most important way to play defense is to shore up the middle of the field, right? Pitcher, second baseman, shortstop, center fielder. And in football, it's also the same. So you need to have middle linebacker, defensive tackles. If you're offensive, interior offensive line, you like safety, quarterback, whatever. You always start, in my opinion, with the middle. And then you work out to the edges. So the fact that if you're looking at Florida's actual where's our talent you go weak side defensive end, outside linebacker, running back, cornerback, wide receiver, and then you get to a center field player, if you will, the quarterback. And you go all the way to the bottom and you say, here's our worst positions. Offensive guard, inside linebacker, offensive tackle. Now, offensive tackle is an outside position, but that's obviously incredibly important when it comes to blocking. It's still an interior center field position. Safety, D-tackle. And that, to me, largely explains a lot of Florida's issues consistently and that's why on one hand we can look at our talent and say well look at our talent we're a solid let's call them tier three on the five-year composite on the other hand we're a sub sec team in a lot of really important regards and like we talked about with the chiefs in the super bowl you can't just make up for that with flashy high-rated talent in peripheral positions those guys that don't get a lot of love all the time are incredibly important to the success of your football team so as you said, Alan, this is why recruiting is important. The individual names to me don't matter as much. Um, what matters is these kind of overall breakdowns of what your roster looks like, where your talent is, where you're deficient. And then is your staff doing a good enough job? Do they understand what it takes to build a winner? And do they understand what it takes to compete with the teams that you have to face? Because every conference has different hurdles, challenges, whatever. You have to build a plan that allows you to compete with the Georgias and Bamas of the world. It's interesting, you know, that kind of philosophical statement. I do think you need strength up the middle of the field, but those would also be the least compensated positions on NFL roster are guard, 
inside linebacker, safety, you know, defensive tackle can vary, but you can put in some guys there to kind of plug and play. So this is this is a fascinating kind of situational analysis. Of course, your most high profile, most well paid people are the corners, defensive ends, offensive tackles, right? Other than quarterback, wide receiver, obviously. But if you are weak across the middle, you will lose despite how good those guys are. So a little bit of a roster construction conundrum there. Um, You can have somewhat lower rated guys if your production in those places is better or solid. If it's not deficient, we've just been somewhat deficient in those places. Now, again, offensive guard, if you have guys like Ethan White and Brett Heggie who are playing above their recruiting profile, I think that's what you want. Um, But, we've missed on too many of those positions for too long. And again, defensive tackle and safety, I think there are places that you can make major moves in recruiting. And we're obviously a step behind there. Yeah. And, and well said, like the payment thing's a great illustration. Uh, payment is going to be geared towards stratification or what you want to call like going to the stratosphere, right? So D tackles aren't going to get paid as much as a top corner or something else because you cannot become such an elite D tackle as often as you could become such an elite corner. It, you just can't like pull yourself that far away. So the average pay is the same. It doesn't mean the position grouping is lower than a top corner. It just means that, hey, Deion Sanders is twice as good as any other corner. And if I can get him, I can take away that side of the field. The best D tackle in the game is not twice as good as the second best D tackle. Unless you're Aaron Donald and he's maybe the best defensive player of all time. And that's what I was about to say next. But most of the time, that's what you see with these position groupings, right? Is what are the top 5%? What do they look like? And what does the guy just behind him look like? Because when you're building a roster, it's all about that kind of composition. It's the same thing in a college football team, like you're mentioning. And safety is a great example. Can I take a corner and make him a safety? Sure. But at the end of the day, if your football team is good, as you mentioned, Alan, you have to be good at the middle. And that then is going to allow, you know, your your special players to be special. And uh, I think that's, you know, that's a nice kind of football building 101 look. Okay. So as you mentioned, Dan Mullen is the king of the transfer portal currently. A question that people have been asking, and I, I've been thinking a lot about, you know, I coined the term portaling, is transfer portaling going to be a more viable strategy moving forward? Traditionally, it's seen like taking JUCO players or transfers, like you have limited roster numbers of years with them, but they count as in the weird NCAA methodology of like counters, initial counters. And so then you put yourself into this position where, you know, after the Charlie Weiss fiasco at Kansas, they essentially have like 39 scholarship players when David Beatty takes over, which will, you will never win any games. You will, you have now tanked your program for years and years and years. But with this kind of initial wave of immediate eligibility, you know, conferred upon a lot of these transfers, is this, a more viable strategy. Again, you don't want you don't want to take all transfers because you have limited eligibility and like lifetime with them. But I don't know. What are your thoughts about this moving forward? I think this function is like free agency does in the NFL. And you and I like to follow the NFL. Um, you know, I know you spent a lot of your time talking about in the past uh, rosters constructed largely by free agents, and that's almost universally a bad sign in any sport. It just doesn't work. Now in basketball nowadays, basketball, professional basketball is so upside down that you can do that. But in these sports like football, especially 
it's a bad strategy to take a ton of free agents. It's an excellent strategy to take the right free agents. See Tampa Bay and Tom Brady. I think that's what this becomes. I think the wise coaches look and say, I need to fill a few holes here. I'll do this. Kirby Smart has come under a lot of heat from Georgia fans for basically, foolishly in my opinion, totally ignoring the transfer market because he just wants to have his guys, his culture from the beginning. That's ridiculous. That would be like an NFL team saying, I only want to draft players. and I'm never going to take a free agent because they weren't in my system, my culture, my way. I think like most things in life, you have to dabble in more than just one arena. We wish Dan Mullen would become more Kirby Smart in the high school arena, and Georgia fans wish Kirby Smart would become more Dan Mullen in the transfer arena. The reality is doing a little bit of both of those things is a home run. So I think it's here to stay. The question, Alan, which is always the question, is what does the NCAA do about this? A lot of coaches are increasingly frustrated with what this is becoming, and we've heard plenty of rumors of college coaches getting to the point to where really – Coaching college football is becoming an, an incredible grind, even more so than it was before because of the always changing, never satisfying player pool. So this will be something to watch, but clearly transfer portaling is an extremely viable strategy. And you know, for Florida, it, it has significantly improved our roster in the years that Dan Mullen's been here. Right. I think it's become it's going to become more important for coaches to understand how this works and how to manipulate it because you can change your roster quickly and you can add in players before it was probably pretty risky when you know the kind of the beginning of the grad transfer like to hope every year you're going to find the right grad transfer was probably a, a fool's errand it was you know kind of the old expression hope is not a plan but if it does pass the summer which i think most people are expecting that everyone will have a one-time waiver transfer immediate eligibility that means you're going to be able to take in guys now you're also going to lose guys so the ncaa is going to have to figure out some of those you know initial counters scholarship numbers again not to get in the weeds with all that there will be have some changes i think they're smartly waiting because it there's going to be unintended consequences and they don't know what those are yet so to make a bunch of rules where you don't understand the outcomes would probably be foolish but i do think Florida being ahead of the game on this could be a tremendous advantage moving forward that you've already shown success for people landing there. Again, this is why some of these players keep landing at Alabama and Ohio state because they see a pathway to the NFL and that is a chief concern of theirs. And so if you're a a recruit who wants to rehabilitate, you've seen people go to Florida and become better. Well, that's the same type of thing. You're like, I've seen people do this before. I'll go do this too. You have a, you know, a proven record of doing that. So this is fascinating because, you know, while we're reeling in the 10th, 13th, whatever recruiting class now on the talent composite, which I'm not even sure includes Eric Gilbert, Eric Eric Gilbert, we're seventh. So we're right there in that tier two behind, you know, those kind of top three guys you've mentioned who are always there, Georgia, Alabama, Ohio State, in there with Clemson, Texas, LSU, Florida, you know, in the mix there. So it puts you closer than you would be with just your high school recruits. So Dan Mullen is kind of backdooring our way into a high, more highly talented team. Again, I, I guess it's still new. We're not sure if he can keep it up, but what he's done so far, most of these guys have worked out, well, you know, not everybody yet. And we'll remain to be seen about DeMarcus Bowen, Eric Gilbert. Can they become productive members of our program? 
Uh, you know, you had a Justin Shorter who was good and a Lorenzo Lingard who didn't play at all. So there will be some variance here over time. But maybe this is a a way for Dan Mullen to bypass some of the kind of inane rules of uh, recruiting high schoolers that he's not very good at and still build a more competitive roster. Again, I think it would have to be better in that first arena, but he can certainly, I think, add on to what he's doing, and he's shown the proclivity to be able to do that. Yeah, totally agree. And uh, to put a bow on what the 2020 talent ranks look like for now, this is your early appetizer, if you will. I'm going to give you the biggest movers and shakers. Uh, As an investor, I strongly use momentum and how I invest, and I love momentum in football as well. And so getting an idea of where teams were last year and where they're going to be next year is often a great indicator of what could happen. So Texas A&M, along with Miami, are your two biggest movers in the talent ranking. So they've jumped up the furthest in the composite rankings in the five-year. A&M up five spots, Miami up six spots, followed by Oregon, Michigan, which is not a positive in my mind because they fell so far. They never should have fallen that far. So they moved up three, but that's not the same. So you've got Miami, you've got Texas A&M, you've got Oregon, and then you have Oklahoma, who stepped up too as well. But Oklahoma, really similar tier. So consider Miami and Oregon and uh, Texas A&M. You're kind of changing the nature of their rosters in a positive way that if you're a fan, you're thinking this is good. Your biggest fallers... By far, Texas, significant falling, not surprising given what went on there. And then Notre Dame, which is perhaps surprising, falling quite a ways back, losing five spots, Texas losing six spots. And you have Penn State, Auburn, Tennessee, and Florida State falling uh, two spots. So kind of a nice little capitalization of who are the outliers here, who's falling a lot, and who's rising a lot. Gives you a nice idea of the teams that could potentially struggle and could potentially have nice seasons. All right, with that, we'll wrap up our football discussion and we will end here just briefly with a little bit of basketball as we like to do during this time of year. Alan, I will readily admit this has been the most checked out I've ever been on football. Um, Normally, even if I'm not a fan of what the coach is doing, I tend to still be pretty into it. I don't know if it's because going to basketball games is not what it once was. I don't know what it is. I've followed it. I've watched plenty of the games. Um, Florida... Obviously, on one hand, looks like they're doing really well. They get a nice win over West Virginia. They start to kind of excel, and then they lose an absolute inexplicable head-scratcher to South Carolina, putting themselves firmly back on the bubble discussion. It's going to be an interesting close to the season for them to see if they make tournament or not. Couching a larger discussion, Kentucky, historically bad. Duke, North Carolina. I don't have an explanation for these things, but if you're a college basketball fan, this season is as bizarre as you could imagine. It's so weird to me. Because of the lack of data points, you're going to see like a pretty big variance, like where we have some good wins and that changes our seed line. And you lose to South Carolina, all of a sudden, whoa, change the discussion. And now we've lost some games against LSU. We're not going to get to play that one. Remains to be seen whether we're going to play on Wednesday. It doesn't look like it. But... Yeah, they, they kind of sucked me back in. I was enjoying the way they were playing. That Tennessee win was great. The West Virginia win was more than great. And then this is hard when you're an inconsistent team in an inconsistent environment where you lose a game to a South Carolina team that, frankly, is better than what it rec- its record was, but still a game that you really needed to win to keep the momentum going, heading into you know some tougher games. So that's a game I know this team would like to have back. But... 
one, I don't think, <laughs> I don't think uh, Mike White fares too well against uh, the South Carolina coach's name is now escaping me. Frank, Frank Martin, Frank Martin. I was gonna say Frank Miller, and that is not right. And so they've had our number frequently, but if you follow the narrative around this team post Keontae going down that they had, at least this is some internal narrative that has come out through the media. They had built this system around kind of a dribble drive featuring him. And then when he went down, they weren't really practicing. They weren't building something new. They're just trying to recover. And, on the other side, getting waxed by Kentucky, getting waxed by uh, somebody, Alabama, who's, you know, frankly, very good. That they had to reinvent themselves on the fly. And they had, they've they done that largely behind the play of Trey Mann, emergency, emergence of Tyree Appleby, Colin Castleton playing really well. They're a different team than they were when they were getting blasted by those teams. So I was hopeful not that they're going to win the national championship, but just some improvement was encouraging that they look like more coherent offense, more thoughtful about what they're doing, but still obviously capable of like dropping a dud like they were against South Carolina. So I, I'm a little more invested in this than you are. I I'm, I like some of the guys in this team. I, I think they do have an avenue to flourish, but this is such a wonky season. We'll see how it plays out for them. Yeah. And like we said before in our preview and our updates that there's a lot of likable players in the team. There's a lot of guys that are fun to watch. I mean, I love watching Trey Mann play. I love Castleton. Guy's a true big guy. Uh, there's there's a lot to like about this basketball team. The hallmark, of course, of any evaluation of any team is consistency, is getting better every year, is running a system, having an identity. Those things are lacking. Uh, I certainly hope Florida makes a tournament and that there is a tournament because we were robbed of one last year. Indeed. And I want to watch one this year, and it's way more fun to have your team in, uh, even if they're you know an 8, 9, 10, 11 seed, whatever the case may be. But Florida has work to do. So if you are a huge basketball fan, we're not going to be doing you a service with this discussion. Just kind of an overview. Once upon a time, we did discuss getting pretty in-depth with basketball. Alan and I do follow basketball closely, uh, especially if we're doing a podcast on it. But... For better or for worse, we just leave it at these general kind of updates. Uh, so with that, we come to the end of this podcast. Alan and I were talking before the podcast, when will we next be on? And we basically said whenever there's something newsworthy to discuss. So it could be April if the spring game does happen that we come back. We would definitely be back then. And it could be before then if there are things that merit some discussion. As longtime fans of the podcast know, we're not on every single day or every single week or trying to cover every little thing, but we do like to cover the big themes that occur. And, and still try to come to you mostly monthly. Yeah, mostly monthly. March is typically the month we would take off, not for vacation purposes, but because normally there's not a lot going on. But again, rest assured nowadays that we will always be with you monthly if there are things to talk about and themes that we think need to be discussed. And as always, you can hit us up on any social media platform, uh, obviously on Patreon, and we will get back to you if you have individual questions or ideas for content. We've got a couple of really good ideas for some some off-season episodes that we're going to explore that you guys have given us, which we appreciate as well. So thanks again for listening, guys. Hope you enjoy the end of February here. If you're in a warm weather climate like us, it's been really nice. And otherwise, we'll see you very soon.
For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done.